Greetings, one and all, wherever you are in the universe, metaverse, or rainbow, and welcome to an Espresso Shot of Confidence, the podcast that explores all aspects of confidence, challenges taboos, and unhelpful narratives, and empowers you to be awesome, loudly and proudly. It's time for you to grab a drink and settle in for however long this episode is. I'm your host, the master of awesomeness, Ashley Griffiths, and today we'll be talking about managing change. Over the last few years, we've all been forced to face change head on. As the result of wars, pandemics, and the rise of virtual living has changed the way that we interact and live our lives. The world of work has certainly changed with jobs for life becoming scarce and more and more people facing uncertainty in the job market. This lack of security has been a catalyst for many people to say balls to this and start flying solo. So who better to talk to about this than Justin Nope, a change coach that helps his clients utilize the power of their brains to manage change in a less stressful and more aligned way. Awesome to have you, mate. Could you let the the audience know a little bit about yourself, Mike? Sure. I'm originally from South Africa, moved to uh, the UK when I was 20. I lived there more or less for about 15 years and then have stayed around the world in various countries. I've lived in every continent, worked in every continent, except for Antarctica, to be honest with you, if you consider that a continent. <laughs> um, my background is in linguistics. And when I was 33, I took myself back to school and I got a master's degree without having an undergrad degree. And that's quite rare as I've found. Um, so the easiest way to describe myself is I am an oddity. And uh, <laughs> specifically speaking, I'm a bit of a, a puzzle fiend. I enjoy unraveling things and then communicating that in a more simple way to others. Oh, I love that. Puzzle, puzzle fiend. I like that. that, that oh, yes. That would make an awesome LinkedIn headline. Um, <laughs> or a brand even on the puzzle fiend. So you've led, you clearly led a very varied, um, life. You've had very career, lived in numerous countries, tried different mm -hmm. things. So ultimately what, what led you into the type of coaching that you're doing now? So the natural tendency for me in the past was to tell people what to do, you know, because, uh, to quote a friend of mine, uh, you know, I seem to, to, to see the matrix, you know, I see the code of the matrix. Um, and so I just tell everyone else like, oh, you, you need to do this. And you, you know, and that's a very human thing to do. I think is just, if you know the answers to something, tell the person what to do, but surprise, surprise, no one ever listens. No one likes being told what to do. And so I realized that my listening skills and then also my ability to contextualize where a person is motivated from, you know, are they motivated for the search for meaning or um, an emotional feeling that they're moving towards or moving away from, or an idea, a sense of logic, uh, social influences, all these types of things. And uh, the coaching that I do now is largely informed by my background, as well as my understanding of how the brain interacts and how languages interact which comes from my 15 years of being a teacher globally, my master's degree in linguistics, as well as then, you know, speaking and educating other teachers at conferences and through courses, as well as now uh, the, the coaching training that I'm going through with regard to paying attention to how to listen and establish a person's context. Where are they? 
what matters to them, and then being able to to come out with the best steps to my ability to be able to help them. Sure, awesome, and like the context is obviously so key, so so much, and Absolutely. oh yeah, because we we obviously see the world through our own lens, don't we? And what might be obvious to everyone else around us is it might be staring us right in the face is like exactly uh, <laughs> the part that i find the most interesting is is it's not it's not necessarily that people see or don't see it's that people don't care or do care like it's not important for me to know how to blah 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 so someone could present the best way to crochet in the world and like don't you see this is the best way and i'm like i don't care about crocheting you know that kind of stuff. So it really, it really, it's the contextualization for me is finding what matters to that person. Yeah, I get that. I was on LinkedIn a little bit earlier and I saw a post kind of a little bit like what you were just saying, where this guy's quite a successful content creator. And he was basically saying this show, don't tell, you know, give, mm. you know, give people potential solutions with mm -hmm. the option that are actionable and then just go and see then that gives them the option if it's relevant to them they'll give it a go if it's not they won't yeah yeah exactly and uh, yeah absolutely and in terms of that like i mentioned at the start of the podcast the change has obviously been something that's been thrust on our throats in in recent <laughs> years whether whether you've wanted to or not. And I've noticed that there's a lot of resistance to change. I know mm. over the past, over the years that I've been resistant to change and I see it every single day when, when I'm communicating with people or I see it on LinkedIn, this resistance to maybe leave a job or resistance to promote their services into the world or, or whatever level it is. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just interested to, to hear your thoughts on this. Like, why do you think change is, is so stressful for, for so many people? Mm. So there, there are two things that go on in the brain with regard to change. And I think it's relevant to talk. The first one is that a lot of your brain has a, a, an idea about like guesstimating how much resources it needs to dedicate to achieve a certain task. Okay. And the knowledge of that actually means the brain can then start using autopilot. So uh, think about going for a run. So the military do this to kind of train this muscle in, in soldiers as well. The idea of like, go for a run, but it's not a 20 minute run. It's not a 20 mile run. You will be told when enough is enough. So you have no idea how to gauge how much energy, what kind of pace you, you just have to go until they tell you to stop. And the, the most uncomfortable thing about this is that the fact that that part of your brain just goes haywire, it can't try and regulate things. Yep. So we also see uh, vestiges of this in um, what's called the central governor theory, which is again, it's this entire system of um, guesstimating and managing and regulating. So that is something that is of particular difficulty. If people are stressed and they don't know what, what outcomes are going to come, that part of the brain goes a bit haywire, number one. Uh, number two is that, you know, change is super stressful because change is usually the unknown 
And so our habits are formed neurological pathways. We, we use those neurological pathways time and time again, and it becomes automated behavior. What becomes stressful is when you have to create new habits, get away from old habits, you know, and you're creating new habits. It also challenges your skill level. It challenges your confidence level, et cetera. And you also don't know what are the highest leverage points in those new habits. What should you pay attention to? What should you not pay attention to? And so it's, it's a lot of energy spent as well because you are technically unskilled at change. Whatever it is, whether it's finding a new job or you know, um, starting your own company, or whatever, whatever that is, it's, it's always got to do with managing that energy. And if you, if you don't manage that energy well, it's just it's a lot of energy spent. And then the brain starts thinking about, but I don't want to do that. I just don't want to spend a ton of energy in those kinds of ways. So, yeah. Yeah, I get that. I mean, just as you were talking about point number one, I, I, I was kind of grinning away to myself because I just thought, that sounds like my yoga teacher. That sounds like my yoga classes, man. Honestly, she'll just, you just don't know when the pain's going to stop. So you have to try and, re- <laughs> you just have to try and regulate it. Um, exactly and and she'll say you stop when i tell you to stop sort of thing so that that notion of yoga being this super zen sort of thing not the classes i go to not the classes i go to and yeah coming to the second point i've also kind of came to that realization as well really that i think that that fear of uncertainty um Mm. certainly in the the area i work with people not wanting to post content online, not doing mm-hmm. videos, not doing any of that. It's that uncertainty. Well, oh, what happens if people judge me? What happens if, you know, the world explodes whatever it is, there's that uncertainty and you don't, you're not going to know what's going to happen next until right. you do it. Right. Yeah. And, and I often see this kind of wrapped up in concepts such as comfort zones and people talk mm-hmm. about things like, Oh, well, I won't do this because of imposter syndrome or they've got comparisonitis concerned about, Oh, well, you know, things have to be perfect before I can make a change or and mm-hmm. there's just so many concepts like this going around. Is there anything else you can add to this? Why you think people may stay stuck in these comfort zones? for so long, even when, even when all the evidence that they may be receiving is saying, it's time to go, it's time to do this, it's time to make a change. Mm. There's a quote that lives rent-free in my head at the moment, which is, (laughs) the price of longevity is inefficiency. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And, And another way to say this is, efficiency is the enemy of longevity. So... The, the idea around comfort zones is actually it is the most efficient mechanism in your brain is to put up comfort around you in the short term. Sure. But in the long term, if you're looking at this as a longer play, discomfort, uh, controlled discomfort, getting out of your comfort zone in a controlled way where you have agency over what's going on um, and you can control like how often you go there as well. That will obviously lead to greater skill ability, resiliency, tolerance to uh, stimulus and risk in the long term. So again, uh, the price of longevity is inefficiency. The more inefficient you are, 
uh, the more you're going to build and stabilize certain skills. And the more efficient you are, the more you'll see results in the short term. So think about it like if you go, what's the, the most efficient way for me to exercise my body? It's going to be like, okay, a push and a pull in front of me with resistance training, a push and a pull above, and perhaps a squat and a, uh, a deadlift type of motion. Sure. So you got six movements, the most efficient six movements that you can find to really build your body or something like that. But if you only do those movements in the long term, your internal and external rotation of your shoulders and your hips going to go to crap. You know, um, yeah. you're not doing any cardio, you're not doing any stretching, which really helps like fascia kind of release a lot of tension as well and helps you connect with your body. You're not focusing on your mind muscle connection. You're not focusing on any twisting or lunging movements as well. So mm. there's all kinds of things that can be affected by an efficient program in the short term. So I do think that when we talk about getting out of your comfort zones, it's programmed within us to be comfortable because it's a short term mm like mechanism in the body to save energy and to conserve sure. as much as possible. But in the long term, we need to recognize, am I in danger? Yes. Okay, cool. Go to the short-term mechanisms, mm -hmm. you know, comfort zones, be safe. But in the long term, huh, am I, am I in danger? No. Okay, cool. Well, let me start, you know, trying to find ways that I can get out of my comfort zone, I can challenge that and, uh, and really, um, you know, get comfortable with, Control discomfort. Sure, because I think um, one of the, the the things that I've seen come up a lot in in the literature regarding like comfort zones and stuff, and uh, the way the human mind works or anything is the need for gratification, and certainly mm -hmm. in that short term, James Clear and various other experts describe this as the path of least resistance. So if it's mm -hmm. if it's going to be a chore to get past that. Mm -hmm. then you're going to find excuses not to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, 100%. You know, the the idea of like going for the cookie instead of the banana requires <laughs> you to spend a lot more energy in making the decision to go for the banana. You know, the marshmallow test, if you've heard of that one, there's another one with kids when they say like, how long can they resist the marshmallow? And corresponding the idea of like delaying short-term gratification actually translated into success when they were adults because they were able to stave off making short-term decisions for short-term gratifications for longer, bigger plays with more rewards as well. You know, like staying at home and studying so that they could, um, you know, rest easy with their academics than going out and partying on the Friday night and saying they'll study an hour before the test. So there's all kinds of kind of relationships between, again, the short-term gratification and the long-term gratification. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that I focus on specifically is choosing what are the habits that an individual wants over the long term. What are going to be the most inefficient habits that we can get into, like exercising the entire body or blah, 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 blah. And looking at falling in love with the process of those things so that we're not interested in a result. We're not interested in a peak um, encounter or experience as a result. So for example, with short term, hey, you know, exercise for two months and get your beach body going versus create falling in love with the process of exercising and connecting with your body on a daily basis that could spit out that short term result, but that's just a, a cherry on top. You know, you actually are enjoying the daily activity more than the result that it'll spit out. So sure. 
um, you know, falling in love with the process and the results will be the byproduct of the process. Okay. That definitely makes sense for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just kind of coming back to the marshmallows. I, I always used to say to anyone I've ever lived with, if I can't see the cookies and the chocolate, I won't eat them. If they're there, <laughs> there's a high likelihood they won't be there when, when you get home. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to put my hands up to that. And, it, yeah. and it's it's so true. At the start of the year, I decided to make a few changes um, mm -hmm. regarding my diet and stuff. And I was like, I made the visual cues more obvious. So mm. I wanted to increase the amount of water I was drinking. So I would leave bottles of water all <laughs> over my, all over my office. So I could, it was literally, mm -hmm. honestly, <laughs> it looked, I don't even know what it, how to describe how it looked. There was just all this random bottles everywhere <laughs> and, and pieces of fruit just kind of randomly on the desk and stuff. But it, I found it very effective because those visual mm -hmm. cues were there and then it just became second nature, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is, which I think is, is very important when, when you're trying to manage any sort of change. Now, right. in terms of confidence regarding change, mm -hmm. what kind of role do you think confidence might play in managing any form of change? So for me, the way that I understand the mind is that we've got muscles and just like anything, if you go to the gym or if you're training anything, exercising those muscles, you know, you have it, whether you, you recognize it or not, you've got a muscle, unless there's a particular like a defect or something like that. You've got a very abnormal brain birth defect, something like that. We all have these muscles of the mind. Number one. Uh, number two is that there are techniques with how to, perform different tasks. So for example, uh, you know, doing one form of yoga, they might explain a downward dog in, mm. in a certain way and with certain alignments and another form of yoga might explain the same downward dog position with a completely different technique or yeah. how to arrive into it as a different technique. And so there are techniques and muscles. And so confidence is when you've, you've got the muscle and you've got the technique to achieve that and you develop skill. Mm-hmm. And so confidence is mislabeled. It's not a belief in yourself. It's really just, um, oh, I've evidenced that I have skill in this particular mode or not. Okay. So it doesn't have to be with the thing itself. It could be, let's say, with change. You've got confidence in changing because you've changed a lot in the past. You have no confidence in the area you're trying to change into or transition into. But you've got confidence in your ability to adapt to you know, to rise to the occasion, to perform under pressure, etc. So confidence is literally a skill. And if you're not confident in a particular task, a little bit more time in that domain will increase your confidence greatly. A little bit of technique change from people around you who give you some tips and cues and things like that will again, increase your confidence. So social validation comes in here as well, but it's, it's got to do with regarding anything. And when you're exercising, you can't see your own downward dog. So recording it or getting another person to comment and getting another pair of eyes will greatly socially validate your skills or give you tips, clues, feedback mechanisms, which can improve your downward dog anyway. And again, increase performance and increase confidence. Sure. So for me, confidence, the role that it plays in, in terms of change, confidence is a skill 
And the greater that skill is, either the skill of change or the skill of that particular one thing that you're trying to do, um, the higher that skill is, the, the more effective you're going to manage that change and stress. Sure, sure. I totally get that. I think over the last few years, I've seen a lot of people make the jump into self-employment or running their own businesses, whatever, or going freelance or whatever it is that they've been doing. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of people going, well, I don't know how to run a business. And I, I was thinking, okay, fair enough. You've never run a business before. Of course you don't know. But what skills mm-hmm. have you acquired along the way that are going to help you run your business now? Mm-hmm. Because I refuse to believe you're coming to this with nothing. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people, they hadn't even thought about that. They were like, oh, I thought I had to be such and such a way or I had to do such and such a thing because now I'm a business owner. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's quite interesting when you were saying that, you know, maybe you won't have that confidence to be a business owner because you've never been it, been it at that point, but you mm-hmm. may have skills that will enable you to jump on that learning curve and maybe negotiate it quicker than you think it's possible. Exactly. Yeah. So my confidence in my ability to learn is incredibly high. And so even when I start something new, like this year, I started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, you know, my confidence in learning, like it doesn't matter if I get into a match and I get submitted 20 times, it's, it's not shaking my confidence. The way that I understand it is that I'm like, I need to understand the most typical puzzles. And then I need to expose myself to content on how to how to learn how to move through those puzzles. And through those techniques, I find the patterns within those techniques that can give me principles as well. Mm-hmm. And so now we're six months into my Brazilian jiu-jitsu journey and you know I'm still a white belt. But okay. when I go around now, like I can uh, I can submit a lot of blue belts. I give blue belts a very difficult time. Um, oh wow, cool. And and that again, it just it just reinforces that level of confidence. And some people would say, "Yeah, but I don't want to learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu." And it's like it doesn't matter what you're learning. Your confidence with learning means it'll transfer over. So I took that and I started applying it to learning how to train my dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can take that over and you can learn how to do business accounting, for example. And so now, now I don't I don't use any fancy apps or anything. You know, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. And I do yeah. my own accounting on it, just on Same. a spreadsheet. And I'm very confident where the first year I was almost in tears because I didn't know how to do any kind of business accounting. So, Yeah, I hear, I hear you with that. No, totally, man. I mean, like from my background in, in management, I was like, it's a spreadsheet. I love them. You know, I was always, <laughs> <laughs> I was always big with the numbers. So certainly where the business is at the moment, it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem logical to outsource that mm-hmm. because no. I, I know the numbers. Um, but I totally get that. I mean, certainly with what I'm going through at the moment, like learning about podcasting, recording, I mean, learning Mm -hmm. how to use a microphone has just been Mm -hmm. mind blowing for me. Um, it just, I I was watching back some of the first videos, how I was on the microphone and, and and I was, I was kind of like, I don't know how close I should be or where I should be or what I should be doing. And I'm ducking around like, I don't know, I'm on on a fairground ride and and with editing and stuff. But I think the thing with it is obviously when you start off, you don't have that experience. You don't have that knowledge, but having that trust, like you said, and that belief Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that you can learn it because you've learned stuff in the past 
and you know that by doing trial and error you'll figure stuff out eventually mm-hmm. and then if after a while and this was something i said to myself regarding the editing process for podcasting i thought i'm going to give it a couple of months and to see how long it takes me how quickly mm-hmm. i adapt to the material and the the software and everything mm-hmm. and then i'm going to look at that as a time and think is that a worthwhile use of my time and if mm-hmm. not outsource to someone who'll get it done a lot quicker but i'm really enjoying it so i think uh, someone's someone's not getting a job coming <laughs> <I mean>, forwards <laughs> but it's awesome 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 so let's just move on to like the type mm. of coaching that you do so mm. you now focus on something called neuro resiliency now i really mm-hmm. struggle to type that i mean i can just start so typoed it in the in the script there <laughs> so i'm happy i was able to say it so in terms of this i mean what is neuro resiliency and and how would you define resilience so it's interesting um every time i've spoken to someone who's interested in resiliency whether it be you know, a CEO of a publicly traded company or an athlete or something like that, everybody's got their own definition of resiliency. And I was like, (laughs) sounds incredibly woo woo, kind of like, what is your definition of spirit? And they're like, spirit is blah, 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 blah. It just gets such, you know, to this place where we can't all negotiate a meaning. Like one Mm. person says resiliency, but what they mean is uh, something completely different, like the will to dominate or push through or something like that, Mm -hmm. where another person means like, uh, the ability to recover or whatever. So resiliency doesn't necessarily mean uh, what everyone thinks because everyone's got their own definition. So I looked up a dictionary definition and the dictionary definition is literally your ability to get knocked down and come back to the same place again, right? So resiliency is your ability to recover okay. from something. And for me, the idea of that kind of resiliency, I didn't like it because um, then if you go into the definition of adaptability, it's for you to come into a situation, recognize all of the markers and change effectively to suit the situation to your needs. And so that's how I would rather define resiliency, you know, is real adaptability, true adaptability, so that your tolerance for difficult, stressful and riskful times just increases. So a good way to think about this, if you think about like the perfect version of yourself 10 years in the future and, and all the stuff that you're freaking out about today, that perfect vision of who you want to be would probably laugh and be able to handle what you're, what you're doing now, the most stressful moment as like daily, you know, a daily moment of like, eh, it's not a big deal, you know? Um, and so that idea of resiliency of how um, how they've got such risk tolerance, such stress tolerance, like it, it's not a big deal. So neuro resiliency is compounded by the fact that yes, you do get a physical type of resiliency. Um, but neurologically speaking, the way that you process information in the brain, number one, and number two, how your neurological system actually responds to stress is m- far more leveraged and far more effective to manage than anything else. Like I've, I know so many people are talking about working on resiliency and they're doing cold plunges, but you speak to them about a breakup and they fall to pieces, yeah. you know, and, and then you think about the way that they can manage their, uh, and process their negative emotional stress. 
Uh, so there's a professor of neuroscience in a university that I corresponded with, and and he was challenged on how do you define cognition? And he includes okay. emotional management as well underneath that, because if you think about when you're emotional, your brain just shuts down. So within the banner of neuroresiliency, I would also include managing emotions, cultivating positive emotions and processing negative emotions as well. Sure. I think that's, that's a powerful one that, um, emotional resilience, I think in, in anything, mm -hmm. sure. I think, right. it, it, you know, what you were saying there is that different contexts, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and I often think about how how I am on say a professional level to how I am on say a personal level. And sometimes I feel like I'm two people <laughs> you know, like right. the, the way I react to things on, on a professional level. Um, and it's like, okay, there's a disappointment. I might sulk for about five minutes and I'll get on with it. <laughs> okay. How can I find a solution on a personal mm. level? If there's anything like that, Oh man, I'll be sulking for about a month. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's an, it's an interesting one. How you can be, you, you're obviously the same person, but the stimuli or the situation will cause a different reaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There's, there's a belief that, uh, how you do anything is how you do everything. And so. Sure. Um, if you're familiar with the model of internal family systems, the idea that there's a child in you that reacts to things and throws tantrums, and then there's a professional side of you and there's a soldier in you. And there's like, you know, there's a mother, a father, you know, all of that kind of stuff inside you that are all different aspects of your personality. Now, the more you can align all of the aspects of your personality, the more you'll, you'll be able to see very strong movement towards okay. your goals. So the idea is also like, yeah, you still felt that disappointment, but um, when you were professional, you just got on with it because there was a part of you that was saying, like, suck it up, let's carry on. But in your personal life, you don't see that part of you come and interfere or intervene, but you still have the response of disappointment. And so it's the idea of like, okay, cool. Well, let's unpack that. Let's establish what are the beliefs or what are the perspectives that you are using that will create these feelings from the stimulus that you're getting. They came from somewhere. They're definitely rooted in your past. They were a survival tactic for you in the past. Now they're being activated in ways that you don't want them to be activated. You, you, there's no point in you getting disappointed by these things. It's just how life works and you understand that. So how can we get to a place where there's no longer disappointment? There's just the idea of, oh, this is the situation. Okay. What can we do now? You know, how do we... You know, oh, I just got given lemons. Oh, I didn't want lemons. I wanted apples. Oh, I got given lemons. Cool. Let's have some tequila. Let's uh, let's cook some fish. Let's let's make lemonade. You know, you can think of like fifteen different things. Why don't we play a game where we use the lemon? You know, lemon juice is invisible ink, and we can play spy masters or something like that. You know, I like that idea. There's all kinds of things. So yeah, absolutely. I, I do have a saying um, that when it, whenever certainly I catch myself a drama or whatever i'm going there's always a solution actually there's always mm -hmm. a solution mm -hmm. so i get i guess I'm, I'm a fan of puzzles as well mm -hmm. <laughs> so in terms of i think you've, you've kind of alluded to that when you were talking there but in terms of i mean how can people 
harness the resiliency that you talk about? How can they, is there any other ways or any other advice that you could give people on how to bring resiliency into their businesses, into their lives, um, so that they can feel the benefits of this? Mm -hmm. So one of the big things with regard to this is going to be, like we said before, you know, the price of longevity is inefficiency. There is also the idea of like, there's a harmony of things that come into play. And so recognizing the correct context for things is important. So are you in a state of fight or flight? Is this a problem situation? Are you in danger? Okay. Then you literally need to um, have some type of relief and recovery. You know, that's, that's what it calls for. So understanding where you're at, if you are in a place where you feel super threatened, you need to get to a place where you can feel calm. So whatever tactics get you there is amazing. But once people are calm, they usually don't do anything. They're like, oh, now I can live my life. Now I can just chill out and do whatever the hell I want to do because it's, it's usually a sense of control. When the situation has more control over you and you have to respond to the situation, it's, it's very disempowering. So people always, you know, their emotions go to negative places. And so the, the concept is about you always have some kind of power. The perception that you have of how much agency there is, is very important to see how you feel as well. You know, there's a relationship. If you feel in control, anything can happen and you're confident and comfortable and you're like, that's okay. You know, that's cool. We'll deal with it. You know, there's a confidence mm -hmm. that comes with that. There's a, a positive mindset that comes with that. And I know it sounds very woo woo and there are specific techniques and skills and tactics, but it's more to the point of once a person is okay, once mm -hmm. the situation is, you know, you know, again, regulated, it's back to normal. What do you do? And one of the biggest things with regard to resiliency is practice the emergency things. Do the emergency okay. drills before the emergency happens. Okay. That's one, oh, of, like that. one of the biggest things that I recommend to people is like, don't wait for X to happen before you start preparing, you know, like <laughs> you're in a time of peace. Okay, cool. Prepare for war. You don't have to go to war, just prepare for it, you know, before it happens or put things in place, put protocols in place, put it, practice it. You know, I was a teacher in schools for a while and every now and again, we do a fire drill, fire emergency yes. evacuation drill. <laughs> and you're that. like... Right. Because you know what happens is if you don't do them, like people don't respond appropriately. Sure. You know, people fart around or whatever, and you don't know whether it's a drill or it's the real deal. So just treat it as the real deal each time and you manage it and you, you come to a place where you're like, you know what? I could handle this if this were real. This would, this would be fine. If it were real, it would be a tragedy, but I would respond appropriately. And it starts to become automated and it can become a habit and you stop fearing it. And when it does happen, it's not stressful. It's not incredibly uh, taxing on your mind. You've already established what you're going to do. So again, it's just this idea of like, you know, you can engage with it in what if thinking, but you can also engage with it with just, you know, planning your actions or moving out some actions, whatever it is, you know? So but the idea is when you're in times of peace, think about what you would do if, or practice doing it, you know, and it really helps resiliency a lot, a lot. Cause it's not the fact that it's a stressful situation. It's the fact that I'm familiar with this situation. 
Okay, so it doesn't come as such a shock or or result in so exactly. much chaos. Exactly. Um, it doesn't have the emotional impact that sure. it would if you didn't prepare for it. Okay. Totally get that. And just coming back to the the school thing and, and, and some of the stuff that you said earlier on, um, because this is kind of an area that was interesting to me when I when I was going through my education career. I'd work with adult learners and some of the adult learners would come in and they're taking in their stride. They take the whole thing in their stride and other adult learners would kind of freak out about the whole thing or would mm -hmm. be openly hostile to be in that, that environment. And there was a couple of things that I learned when I was studying this area. In some cases, people from a mental point of view revert back to their schoolhood they're basically becoming a, a child again in that, yep. that situation. Whereas other people mm. I noticed they had a, a sense of self-efficacy as I think Albert Bandura uh, talked about mm -hmm. this belief that they can succeed in, in that skill. And I've seen this concept kind of play out in life a lot over the years in all sorts of levels with people believing, I don't know, I've got an illness and I know I'm going to get better. I've, I've got this terrible situation right now, but I know that I will get past it. So, I mean, would you say that there's this kind of like this link between self-efficacy, I can't even say it, self-efficacy <laughs> and resilience? Um, it wouldn't be an episode without me getting tongue-tied. Um, <laughs> um, oh the belief uh, to succeed in a particular skill, yes. Yeah, I would say I would say there is. I think to say that that it's got to be belief or faith as well is a little bit too woo woo uh, okay. for me. Which which I like to translate it in a different way instead, because um, you know the kinds of people that I want to I want to work with are people who um, you know also struggle with this idea of faith. Well, how do you define faith? How do you define faith in yourself? You just like. You know, because literally, if you think about it, it's like the straight up belief that every every piece of feedback that you're getting from the universe and people says this won't happen. And you're like, it will. <laughs> you know, that's not you know, that's that's almost like you're ignoring feedback cues. Mm -hmm. So what's another way of saying it where it, it's it's it serves us a little bit more. And at least for me. Um, and so the, the way that I think about this is the idea of if you spend any time in the domain you're going to increase your skills. Mm -hmm. And so I use progressive overload and progressive underload okay. as two mechanisms for change. Okay. So think about it like this. Progressive overload is if I can pick up 20 kilograms, I'll, you know, then tomorrow I put an extra kilogram on each side. So I now I've got, let's say 22 kilograms and I pick it up. Right. So I get mm -hmm. stronger as I progressively overload um, you know, I will increase my results. Now, progressive underload is the opposite way around. If I'm trying to do a pull-up and I go to one of those machines in the gym that um, you put a certain amount of weight on, and what it does is that weight counterbalances you. So you're doing a pull-up at minus 20 kilograms because the, the weight that you put on the machine counterbalances yep. 20 kilograms. So progressive underload is progressively removing some kind of support. So mm. then I can do pull-ups today with 20 kilograms on the machine, take, you know, counterbalancing me. 
Then tomorrow I come back and I do 18, 17, 16. So that's progressive underload. And using these kind of concepts, and we get to this place of um, belief in learning because we've seen it in action. But we also get to the point where if I can't do something, it's a realization that it's not, it's not me, it's that my skill isn't developed. It's not that I don't hold value. It's that these muscles aren't strong enough yet. Let me, <clears throat> let me just decrease the weight or increase the support. So the idea then comes in, not with the result, but in true, uh, true self-knowledge. Love you know? that. And reflecting on the idea of adults as well. One of my favorite books was called The Social Brain by okay. Richard Crisp. Um, he's a professor in the UK and he talks about this. Um, there were studies done that show that there are psychological uh, factors at play with teenagers and learning how to socialize. And what they do is they will um, absolutely turn down all personality markers to conform to a group. <laughs> so there's yeah. three phases. Phase one, they turn down all their markers when they enter a group and they just observe. Once they've observed the group's psychological, let's call them settings, they will then try and match these psychological settings mm -hmm. and conform to what the group is, right? So stage one is like they will change themselves into a blank slate. Stage two, they will then copy whatever the settings are. And stage three, they will then tweak their settings to be personalized individual members of that group, the jester, the leader, the... <laughs> the right hand person, whatever it is, I'm thinking about gang metaphors. I'm thinking of the warriors, you know, that movie. <laughs> um, but, but the point is, is that we're like hardwired for conformity yeah. to feel a sense of community and belonging. And that's initially, but over time, um, and especially as we become adults, we start to understand our value personally. Mm -hmm. And so in situations where we're not good at things, um, if we have established our personal value, which is a personal contribution to the service of others, and we are sure. happy with that and confident with that, we can show up in other areas where we're going to be absolutely terrible okay. you know, and handle it in our stride. And so it's usually the psychological factor of like, but I know I'm valuable, so I can afford to be crap at these particular areas and take my time to develop these skills or even never develop the skills, but just enjoy being crap at this versus someone who hasn't developed a personal sense of value of contribution to a group, in which okay. case, as soon as their value is challenged, they're, they're being told they're wrong or they haven't studied correctly or they, mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't know it. It's, it's very much like a sense of they're being banished from the group. And that is a big deal. You know, so they're conforming oh, to the sure. group by trying to do the best as possible. But what is happening is the, uh, ultimately the conformity isn't enough because they're not there to conform to a group of learners. They're there to learn, yeah, uh, but absolutely. it challenges them psychologically. So definitely I would, I would say that, you know, with regard to resiliency, it's figuring out as well, how do you personally contribute to the lives of others that actually yeah. they appreciate and you can be strong in your sense of contribution, your personal personality, um, you know, touched method of contribution. Oh, I love that. I think that, that's though. a big deal. Oh, totally. I, I think I see this kind of play out on, on an almost daily basis that trying to fit in. I, I see that mm -hmm. conformity play out on social media on a daily basis. And, and, and you can tell that people are not comfortable with it, but they're trying to do it anyway, because that's what they feel that maybe they should be doing. And 
it just just see the discomfort it causes and obviously when i think when you're trying to conform in that way obviously you, you start becoming very sensitive to well i'm not very good i'm not getting that traction or nobody likes my stuff it's because well, you know you don't like it. <laughs> you know you, <laughs> you don't like what you're up to so you know it's exactly. gonna have that put that energy out into the world and and that's what's going to come back at you um i think it's it's very interesting i believe how how as humans we do have that tendency to not want you know some people will want to stand out but they may be doing mm -hmm. it as you just said in the context of well i will do it in the context of this group or you might just get those outliers that will just do it anyway mm -hmm. <laughs> and um i was I was just thinking about group dynamics as you talked and you said jester and I was like, that's me. <laughs> I, I was, but you know what? If I stick you in a group of learners, yeah. you're gonna be you're gonna be so practiced in the leader role, in the teacher role. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, like all of these different roles live inside you. We just need to find what's the right what's the right uh, environment for you. You know, to, to really yeah. speak to those as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. I to totally get that. I, I've got, yeah, I've got that awareness. Like when I'm in certain groups in networking, it's like, ah, oh, there's the leader. Yeah. I see. Mm. <laughs> he can't help mm. himself. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like your coaching, I know like I was just looking at your website when I was preparing for our call and mm. you kind of list out 10 foundations of health. You say that mm. these are super important. Um, for living a fulfilled, active life. So can you talk, talk us through maybe a couple of those and, and what sure. impact they can have on your life or on your business? Mm, yeah. Um, so they start with the five physical. Um, there's three, let's call them, you know, brain ones. And then there's two, which are more like, you know, your search for meaning and purpose as well. And the idea behind all of them is that when I see people not behaving correctly within each one of these, there's a point of suffering, you okay. know? So let's take one of the first ones is going to be sleep, you know, mm -hmm. adequate sleep is going to get you to zero. Great quality sleep is, it's going to benefit you, but not as much as if you get really poor sleep, how mm -hmm. much it's going to provide a consequence for you. Like, yeah. By not sleeping well, you will suffer more of a consequence. So sleeping well will just remove that consequence and they just allow you to be pretty balanced throughout the day. It's not going to mean like, you know what, I got 10 hours of sleep so I can concentrate two hours extra today. Like that's not how it works, mm -hmm. you know? It's the same one when people talk about brain food, you know, nutrition is so super important. I can tell you the foods to not eat. But definitely, you know, because you'll suffer a major consequence with regard to like brain fog, not being able to focus or think, falling asleep. But foods to eat that are going to boost brain power, it doesn't really exist. And you really need to go into like personal metrics as well to see what foods to eat, which are going to bring your body back into harmony. So the easiest way to think about this is imagine a spider's web. And so I do call these the 10 threads because mm -hmm. each one of these is going to be its own individual thread. And if it if it's not there, the entire spider web is going to shift and fall down in some way. If two are gone, it it distorts the entire harmony of the spider's web. That's the easiest way to say it. So within the physical, there's of course there's food, nutrition, there's movements, and there's sleep. 
and affecting any one of those is going to greatly, greatly impact you uh, positively, negatively, you know, so that's easy. So with food, the four foods that I stay away from that affect the brain are going to be uh, oils, bad oils in particular. There's, mm -hmm. there's really a lot of research that shows that inflammation and what that triggers with regard to um, how that interferes with your ability to think, right? It's inflammatory cytokines. Um, we're talking about gluten as well and what that does to the brain as well. One of my clients was so sensitive to gluten that she used to actually black out. Oh, wow. With a lot of, yeah, I was like, what? Oh, wow. Um, she couldn't remember. It was like five minutes of blackout, but it was still blackout. It really yeah. had like a major impact on her. Um, yeah. Uh, alcohol is another one. For obvious reasons, when people drink a lot of alcohol, like memory goes, but mm. just in terms of a lot of alcohol will inhibit like your thinking pathways. If you've ever been mm. the sober person in a group of drunk people, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, the conversation just went to hell. Yep. Um, and then sugars, sugars. Definitely. Um, we, when it comes to exercise, focusing on resistance, training, cardio for the longevity of your brain, cardio is fantastic. Okay. With regard to resiliency, um, you know, we're talking about resistance training. But then on top of that, there's flexibility training, which is the idea of how much um, sitting in a, and meditating inside flexibility actually will calm you down. It'll help you connect with your body. It's got like, there's a lot of research with regard to how stretching can actually calm down the nervous system. So yoga, for example, you know, there's a lot of studies on relaxation within yoga. It depends on the type, depends on how much you're pushing yourself. Of course. Yeah. Um, sleep we've talked about already. So the other two that I add in there are going to be breathing, not mm -hmm. breath work, breathing, as well as stillness, not meditation. So the reason why I say this is because some people focus on breath work and they do like Wim Hof, but, yeah. you know, when their cortisol is super high and they're super stressed already, you know, engaging in Wim Hof might not be the best idea, but rather engaging in very soft, slow, deep breathing um, should be a better version of that. You know, so it's really what type of breath work do you need to either challenge your body or bring your body back from stress? So, again, determining if you are in a place where you need stress relief and stress recovery, if you're in a place where you're ready to push and grow. So mm -hmm. Wim Hof, I would, um, you know say to people, fine, if you really want to do that there, then do that there. But even then, like Wim Hof doesn't function the way that most people think. Mm -hmm. So whatever, not getting into details on breath work or breathing techniques, but there's a lot of resources that are out there. Just, you know, investigate it. And, and most people who are super stressed, they, you know, you'll be able to see, get them to pay attention and you'll, they realize that they're holding their breath a lot. Oh of the God. Time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is super interesting. And you see this as well in sports where people are told just to breathe. And the natural thing when you're stressed is to hold your breath. Um, so stillness is another one, not meditation. You could meditate. Meditation is a very big umbrella term, different mm -hmm. types of meditations for different purposes. But um, included in stillness is things like sitting and looking out at the sky, you know, mm. a type of contemplation, a quiet contemplation, being quiet. And just allowing yourself to rest and allowing your mind to wander with your eyes open. You don't have to close your eyes, chant or anything like that. So we just call it stillness. Um, but really, even just sitting and planning, stillness where you're like, I'm not doing anything. I'm literally just going to sit. Um, can be very effective, especially for people who don't know how to do that yet and using progressive overloads. So that's really good. So those are the five physical things that, that I recommend. Um, that can really leverage these points and finding your own harmonies and your own tools within that. The three that are in your brain are going to be the social, the emotional, and the cognitive. So for emotional, I, I tend to use the 
Human Givens Institute, Nine Emotional Needs. Okay. Um, for the social part of it, it's really got to do with belonging to groups and things like that. And that does also uh, include being aware of your own biases. The closer that you get to a group of people, the more you're going to change your brain. Yeah. There is going to be a group that you absolutely conform to, and it's not a choice. And there's going to be a group that you absolutely resist to conform to. And that's, again, it's not a choice. It, a lot of it comes from, you know, like you were saying, your childhood allies and enemies. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big deal. And then the cognitive part of it is really where I live as well. The idea of challenging yourself with very complex cognitive tasks, learning great bodies of information, you know, and, and really upgrading your ability to think. It's a big deal. And then the two that are on the outside are going to be legacy okay. as well as uh, agency. And so legacy is just the idea of like, well, you know, think a little bit bigger. What do you want to leave behind in this moment? What do you want to leave behind um, people who don't connect to you for months? Like, how are they going to think about you? What do you want them to think about you? What kind of actions would you like to leave in your wake? That kind of stuff. Um, and then obviously when you die, what do you leave behind? Sure. What do you want your legacy to be? How do you want people to kind of know you and be affected by you and be influenced by you? Um, we, we think about legacy a lot more than, than we probably give rise to because mm. it is about value and contribution to the group as a whole, which is sure. a big deal. Totally. Um, so it's a great way to kind of get into who are you and what matters to you. Um, legacy addresses that. And then the last one is agency. Like how much do you believe you control a particular situation and money? There's a good reason why like rich people um, have a lot of agency, but they have really crap personal development as well because money can buy a lot of agency a lot. Sure. And we see it when people go bankrupt a lot of the time or, or when particular like rich celebrities have their day where they have to, you know, come face to face with the fact that, oh, wait, my money gave me my agency. My money meant that I could buy a lot of control. Sure. You know? So that's a big deal as well. And I think for most people, if we're not in part of the 1%, it doesn't necessarily affect us. But knowing that there's an influence of money there, like, oh, I'm on holiday. Oh, I don't like this hotel. Well, fine. I'll just sack off the thousands that I paid for this hotel and go and find a better hotel on the <laughs> island and I'll be happy. It's fine. And there's a sense of agency there where like, you know, some of us poor schmucks have to just be like, well, <laughs> I'm not so happy up. with this hotel. Well, how could I? Yeah, exactly. And and so we come to this balance of like, what are your resources versus yeah. what is your ability to be resourceful? Sure. You know, and so like, how could I make the best of the situation? I prefer to limit myself. So I then push myself to be more, more resourceful. So my confidence in my resourcefulness skill is uh, is pretty pretty strong already. You know, I think this was, this was illustrated the best where we went, uh, kayaking okay. and my friend, um, you know, we, we went to the side of the dock and these people had just dropped their car keys in the water. Oh, lovely. And the, the guy was shouting at his wife and like, what did you do? He was, and she was like, I'm so sorry. And then the friend was like, holy crap, we're screwed because they, they literally live like three hours away. They would have had to take an Uber for three hours oh, just to nice. get the spare set of keys. And, um, so what did Justin do? Justin was like, huh, how deep is this water? What could I do? And how could I blah, blah, blah. And I was like, so excited <laughs> that I was going to get a chance to dive into the stock and find these people's keys. And it took me three dives 
but I got their keys back for them. Oh, and it was wow, 15 man. feet deep water. And I had been practicing previously. I'd been practicing breath work, uh, breath holds for free diving as well. Okay. So I knew I could do it. Um, so it was, yeah, a good example of agency and practicing that resourcefulness. How do I limit my resources, but still achieve a result? Oh man, that's awesome. <laughs> I bet they loved you <laughs> when you got the keys. Oh yeah, back. oh yeah. <laughs> oh man, awesome, awesome. Oh geez, yeah. Yeah, if I needed you so many times in my life, I, I had so many issues with keys over the years. <laughs> <laughs> you could really help me out there, man. Um, awesome, awesome, awesome. So we, we're starting to come to the end of our our time mm. together. So if there's any listeners out there looking for support, do you have any offers or services that you'd like to let them know about today? Uh, sure. Yeah. I run workshops and I do one-to-one -one coaching as well for my clients. So if anyone's interested in neuro resiliency, they can absolutely reach out to me. Cool. Awesome. And how can they get in touch with you? There's a contact form on my website, www.justinnope.com. My email is very easy. It's hello at justinnope.com. Cool. There was a very specifically chosen hello rather than info or support at or admin at <laughs> i was like no i want people to read this and kind of smile and be like hello hello you know oh yeah so, absolutely hello. yeah i like exactly. that i like that cool 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 and all the links will be in the description of this podcast wherever you're listening <laughs> or watching this so <laughs> before we head off into the sunset i have one final question that i ask all of my guests what is your espresso shot of confidence for our listeners? Mm, I did think about this. And the, the one that I've got is, as we mentioned earlier, imagine the ideal version of yourself from 10 years in the future. Okay. And compare how would they react to the situation? What, what actions would they take? How would they feel about a particular situation? All right. And then reverse engineer, if they're acting in this way and they feel this way, what is their belief or perspective around the situation? Okay. Okay. Compare that with your own and then imagine what, what do I need to change to have that belief? What, what actions do I also need to take? And so the easiest way to get that confidence is try and adopt that type of perspective as well. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Just... I'm going to give that a go. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you very yeah. much, man. So <laughs> awesome. And uh, thanks for stopping by and, and sharing your thoughts, man. It's been awesome, man. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And a huge thank you to you, the awesome listeners, wherever you are in the universe. That's it for this episode. To get notifications of when the latest episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to this channel wherever you're listening or watching this. And all that is left to say is for you to have a great day, week, life, afterlife, everything. And as always, don't forget to be awesome.